The reading of the Word from Acts chapter 21, verse 37, reading through to chapter 22, verse 29. So I invite your reverent attention to God's uh, Word here in Acts 21 and 22. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. As all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. 
But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you to do about? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribute answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound them, bound him. There are, as you know, many events and people who come into our lives that we encounter. Uh, some are planned, uh, some seemingly, of course, uh, unplanned, uh, but uh, we know in God's sovereignty nothing uh, unplanned whatsoever. Uh, but the greatest encounter of your life is when Jesus came for you. Especially in light of the fact that He doesn't come for everyone to save and to change. And when God comes uh, to redeem us and to meet us in that great encounter, He changes uh, who we are, also changes what we do. And that is captured for us in the dramatic uh, scene uh, present in our chapter readings this morning uh, in the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and with respect to the Apostle Paul, uh, the change immediately includes uh, defending the faith. Uh, contextually, you know that Paul was arrested by the Roman commander. Uh, he's in Jerusalem and he's been assaulted by a Jewish mob. Uh, and uh, the Roman intervenes before the mob can kill him. Uh, the Apostle Paul asks for an audience before his accusers and requests that they hear his defense. Uh, verses 1 and 2. The word defense, as you know, is that from which uh, we have our English word apologetics. Uh, it's not to apologize for the faith, it's to defend the faith. And so it immediately, uh, in light of the great encounter that Paul has had, uh, he's going to defend the faith uh, before civil government and again before a very angry religious mob. Uh, the mob, as you know, will uh, reject his defense and uh, seek his death. Another wonderful yet sad, tragic parallel with the, wife, uh, with the life of our Savior uh, because they uh, uh, cried out to the Roman commanders to, uh, to be away with him and to kill our Savior. Uh, Paul will then, uh, in the case of the Roman centurion, uh, make an appeal as a Roman citizen. And God will use this to get him to Rome. Uh, we know from previous verses in Acts that uh, God has predestined Paul to go to Rome to witness. He's going to get to Rome, and not even an angry Jewish mob that's totally out of control can get in the way of God. The change in the life of the Apostle Paul is uh, also dramatized uh, by his past, who he used to be. In Paul's case, verses 3 to 5, he had from the standpoint of Judaism impeccable credentials. He was highly educated. He was zealous for God. 
And in verse 4, he persecuted the way. I remind you because it's a signal event in the book of Acts that the reference to the way is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 40. That the children of Israel were to prepare and make ready the way and the coming of the Lord. Paul has been called to do that. That we might come to the Savior. So reference... Other authors have dramatized this to the exodus of Isaiah being fulfilled by the ministry of Christ and his apostles. In reality, of course, it's important to recognize that Paul opposed God. And all of his accomplishments were in his human achievements. But let's remind ourselves of of God's coming for us. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your New Testament to the uh, book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. In verses 3 to 5. Like Paul, we were also once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, But when the kindness of our God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So God comes for us, doesn't He? And He comes to effect radical change. We once were lost, and Jesus comes, and now we're found. It's also, I think, dramatically expressed for us in another epistle, Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Whatever things were gained for me, I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ, Paul writes. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's a radical expression of the change that God affects in the life of the Apostle Paul. So much so that he ransacks his trophy case and all of his human achievements before Judaism. Counts them but loss that he might gain Christ and be found in him. And having a righteousness, namely the righteousness of Christ, which is the entire basis of our salvation. Radical change in the life of the Apostle Paul. Be found in him that he might know him. It's always good that the parallel in our lives when Jesus came for us is to remember who we used to be. And, of course, who we are now by the grace of God. Reminded of, of the words of Matthew 18.11, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. 
when Jesus came for you, you were lost. And He found you. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, For while we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Who saves His enemies? God does. And that's what we were when Jesus came for us. And while we were His enemies, He reconciled us to God the Father. The encounter based upon the grace of God when Jesus came for us. And of course, in uh, the life of the Apostle Paul, as is in the case of our lives, uh, the change means that we are no longer who we used to be. And we can no longer do the things we used to do because of that great encounter when Jesus came for us. The change, of course, is the product of divine intervention. Uh, many people, I think, being gracious, errantly believe that uh, they find God. Of course, men who are lost and dead in sin can't find God. It's God who must find us. And so here, great expression of the grace of God, he comes uh, to encounter Paul and to change him. Uh, so in verses 6 to 11, there is this dramatic theophany. Christ comes for him. And God is going to save and change Paul by his power because he was powerless and spiritually dead just like you and me. And dead men don't choose to live except God caused them by his sovereign power to live. Uh, so in Paul's case, the resurrected Christ appears to him. In our case, in that most wonderful of all encounters of life, the Spirit comes and arrests us and turns us to the Savior. Same God. Same power. Same grace. Again, I remind you who Paul was. He was an enemy. He was a destroyer of the faith. He was there when they killed Stephen. They stoned him. Paul was there as a witness. He's been hunting members of the church through letters from Jerusalem, arresting men and women, uh, causing them to suffer and to be punished. He was an enemy. But so were we. And God came to save by His power. Uh, the reference uh, you know in uh, this case is to uh, the appearance of Christ on the road to Damascus. Uh, Paul, three times in the book of Acts, references this great encounter. I think the repetition speaks for itself. But it ought to speak to us when we reflect upon when God encountered us and our own testimonies of the power of God. Uh, but Paul has spoken of it already in chapter 9. Here's the second reference. We will look at it again in verse 26. Let's uh, look at uh, Acts chapter 22 and verse 6. came about that I was on my way, approaching Damascus, about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. The allusion, I think, is to the Old Testament. 
namely the two first servant songs of Isaiah. If you have your Old Testament, Isaiah uh, chapter 42. Look very briefly at uh, verses 6 and 7. So reference to Christ, the appointment of Christ uh, by God the Father. Uh, Isaiah chapter 42, 6, And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Think about it. Paul uh, is on the way to Damascus, and uh, God comes through Jesus Christ to encounter him and to appoint him as a light to the nations. And it's Paul who's the great apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 7, to open blind eyes and to bring prisoners out of the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. The light was so majestic it blinds the apostle Paul. Jesus opens his eyes in sovereign power. Isaiah chapter 49, 6, known to us as the second Servant song. Isaiah 49.6 Too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Paul was a Jew. Jesus encounters him. Saves him makes him a light to the nations. He becomes an apostle to the Gentiles so that the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ might extend to the four corners of the earth. In this great, majestic, dramatic encounter on the road to Damascus. The light, of course, is uh, the glory of the resurrected Christ. Uh, The sheer majesty of the Savior causes Paul to fall to the ground. And the divine effulgence interdicts his enemy and recruits him for his service. It's exactly what he did for us. We were the enemies of God. He saved us and recruits us to his service and worship. Uh, Paul alludes to this uh, uh, dramatic event in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, Light, shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Dramatic event in Paul's encounter with the resurrected Christ creates light in a darkened heart. The reality of the biblical theology is that the resurrected Christ begins the end time creation by conquering death and creating spiritual life. Dramatic in the sense that you and I were in prison and he opened the prison doors by his divine power. Set us free as the sons of God. Another way to look at it is in the language of uh, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. And all of these things, Paul says, are from God. One of the radical realities of this encounter is it's all of God, by God and for God. We bring nothing 
doesn't, God doesn't save people who are drowning. He saves people who are dead. God doesn't save people who are attempting to find him. He saves people who are lost and radically changes them. Notice, notice how our Lord identifies himself to the Apostle Paul. Paul says, well, who are you? Jesus said, I'm the one you're persecuting. You are persecuting me. Think about that in, in terms of the sense of uh, the body of Christ. In a certain sense, Paul was not persecuting Jesus. Persecuting his church. But they're one and the same. And Christ is head of the church. The union, the dramatic union of the head with the entire body. Persecuting. I remind you again, that's an enemy. And God saves enemies. And changes them. Recruits them. In one dramatic event. Notice, notice the instantaneous change in Acts chapter 22 and verse 10. And Paul said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all the things it has been appointed you to do. What shall I do, Lord? That's the effect of dramatic change. He's been done for, and now he's going to go do. If you will, the one-time persecutor presents himself for service. The one-time destroyer is now a defender. The change by Christ, of course, is a commission uh, to witness. In Paul's case, he's commissioned for service, uh, verses 12 to 21. And that's true of the change uh, in all of our lives. He commissions us to serve him to worship Him and to advance His kingdom. He recruits by divine power. He trains by divine power. And then He sends us forth by divine power. First, it's an appointment that will come through Ananias in verse 14. Very interesting text. We read from Luke, the God of our fathers has appointed you. The verb is literally God has handpicked you. One of the mysteries of the grace of God is and handpick everybody. But he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Think about it in the sense that he handpicked you. Yeah, we get discouraged, we get beat up. Sometimes we need to retreat and go on sabbatical and perhaps wash our wounds. But then we're recovered because God handpicked us to do His will. But notice the purpose, the purposefulness of God. When God changes, He changes with purpose. Again, verse 14. He's appointed you to know His will and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. To know, to see, and to hear. 
And the explanation is in verse 15, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. You will be a witness for him. That's the recruitment. How does it happen that in an instant an enemy becomes a recruit to go and be a witness? Well, it happens because of God's sovereign power. The greatest encounter of all of the world. It's wonderful to read that uh, Jesus came for Paul, but think about it. He came for you as well. That election is purposeful. It engages witness. I think it's an allusion to Acts chapter 1 and 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Geographic expression, uh, even to the ends of the earth. That's what Paul's going to begin and the church will finish. The purposefulness of divine election. The greatest of all encounters when Jesus comes to gather his people. That the Spirit comes for power and divine ability to prosecute the call, the call to witness. Absent, of course, of the divine power, um, the prosecution of the witness will fail. It's good for us to remember that God doesn't fail in his purposefulness. He can't fail because of who he is. It's also important to recognize in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that the uh, commission includes the very content of the witness. New American Standard reads, and you shall be my witnesses. I'd like to paraphrase that. And you shall be witnesses about me. This great divine encounter changes the Apostle Paul carry the gospel to the Gentiles, the counter engages us to witness about the great Savior. I stress that because uh, in my mind it's an expression of the content of the gospel. It's also an expression that the Spirit empowers the content. If the Spirit were not present, nothing would, nothing would happen. That's why the encounter is so majestic. It changes Paul. It changes us. It makes us new. It commissions us to do, and we go do the things that the great God has commissioned us to do. To be witnesses of the majesty, the greatness of the divine, eternal effulgence in the eternal Son of God, who is Christ Himself. Greatest commission of all time. It came to Paul, also comes to you. Unlike some of you, I was uh, commissioned in the service. Some of you are commissioned in your own vocations to go do in certain things. Spiritual world, we're commissioned to the greatest of all events. Uh, to carry forth the majesty of the name of Christ, the eternal creator God, who is making all things new by his power and gathering his people and will ultimately consummate it uh, when he comes for them. It should be the greatest encouragement for us because nothing is meaningless. There is no chance. There's the eternal Son 
who recruits us to do his will. This uh, commission of uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that I think Paul is alluding to, uh, when he uh, tells Paul he's going to be a witness, it unravels most beautifully in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But if you recall, uh, when we were preaching through that text, I saw it as an allusion uh, to act, pardon me, to Isaiah chapter 43. In other words, uh, I think Luke is relying on the prophet Isaiah as he speaks of the greatness of the coming of Christ, uh, inaugurating the end time exodus to our end time destination. And what are we to do in this great end time journey? Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 to 12. Uh, The larger context is, interestingly enough, the restoration of Israel. And if Luke is indeed alluding to Isaiah, uh, it's our restoration. Uh, As well in the immediate context, God summons idolaters uh, to court and challenges them to predict and affect the future. Guess what? They can't. Idols cannot predict, much less affect the future. Allah can't. Buddha can't. All of the idols of the world are gathered into a courtroom. And Isaiah says the courtroom is silent. you know why? Because they're totally impotent. There's only one God who can affect the future, and that's our God. That's our Savior who came for us. That's the majesty of who He is. And God interrupts the silence in the courtroom with witnesses of His sovereignty. Let's let's read the text, Isaiah 43, verses 10 to 12. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. If I am correct in understanding that that theology has been picked up by Luke in Acts chapter 1 and then expressed again, and the great encounter of Jesus to the Apostle Paul in the road to Damascus, it means that the great God of heaven is acting again and raising up a true witness of who he is, namely witness about Christ, the majesty of God. The reference to witnesses, interestingly enough, in the context of Isaiah, is that God has kept for himself witnesses who have kept themselves pure from idolatry. Great reminder that in our witness, we have no other gods. There is no other name among heaven and in all the earth which saved us other than the name of Jesus Christ. No other name. We forsake them all. We proclaim none of them. We agree with none of their adherents because they are all impotent and our God is the sovereign creator, namely Christ himself. Notice again, like the encounter with Paul, there's a declaration in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. 
Notice the purpose. In order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. It's a measure of the purity in our commission. There's not many gods, there's but one. There are not many saviors, there is but one. Only one. And think about it. He came for you. Totally undeserving. No merits whatsoever. You were lost and could not be found. He came for you. Made you alive. That you might witness about Him and His power to the ends of the earth. To know, to believe, and to understand. And all of these are statements of absolute exclusivity. One of the most terrible things in our culture that we read about sadly today is that inclusiveness has come into the Christian church. They're not witnesses of God. Because Isaiah 43 describes the two witnesses of God. We know and we believe and we understand Him alone to the total radical exclusion of all other gods because none save but our God Jesus Christ. That's the point of, of the text that uh, God alone uh, has the power and the will to save. Again, let's reconnect with Isaiah 43 in verse 12. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. Only God saves. And only God proclaims there are to be no strange gods among us. It may not be popular in the culture in which we live. But we're not called to be popular. We're called to be true. Because the true God came for us and stood us up and commissioned us as true witnesses, rejecting all others, save himself. Think about it. We witness and He saves. And the witness, the witness engages God's solitary ability to effect restoration. Again, excluding with emphatic certainty the prospect of deliverance apart from Him. It's the confidence that we can have the saving power of Jesus Christ. And confirmation of this clarity comes again uh, from the text in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43, uh, in verse 13. Even from eternity I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? It's the God of heaven who alone can save, and no one can reverse it. He came for Paul. He came for you. In Paul's case, he was a persecutor. He tried to destroy the church. And God, in one dramatic moment and instant, saved him and turns him into a defender. You and I were destroyers too. We were the enemies of God. And God, in one dramatic 
event of sovereign grace made us his defenders to prosecute the faith. We are his agents stood up by his great sovereign power. It's very interesting that if uh, Luke indeed is alluding to uh, Isaiah uh, and I think that he is because of the correspondence of the words of witness. Uh, in Isaiah, God speaks. In Luke, Jesus speaks. Because Jesus is God. The one true God who saves. And he makes us witnesses the content which is entirely and solely himself. And again, the presence of the power of the Spirit affects the commission and preserves the content of the saving power of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Christ is now in one great moment made a divine agent. I don't know when Jesus came for you. If you know the Savior, I know that He did come for you. And He saved you by His power. And like the Apostle Paul, he made you his agent to carry the greatness of his name. The second part of Paul's commission uh, is in uh, Acts chapter 22, verses 17 to 21. Uh, specifically, he has a vision. Uh, in verse 21, we read, And he said to me, Go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's the history of the book of Acts. Did Paul stumble? Did Paul fail? Did Paul only make it halfway? No, Paul did it all because he was empowered by God. The parallel is our great commission, Matthew chapter 28. Go make disciples, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. That's our commission, just like the Apostle Paul's. Dramatic reality. Prophetic fulfillment. Paul was blind and dead. God came and gave him light, opened his eyes. You and I were just as blind and just as dead. Jesus came and resurrected us and gave us eyes to see and hearts to know and hearts to believe and hearts to beat to do his will and to witness about the majesty of who the Savior is. Again, dramatic prophetic fulfillment. Uh, really, uh, in that sense, it concludes the entire prophecy of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 18, the prophet says the time is coming. In uh, Acts, the time now is. In Isaiah 66, 19, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Paul is. So are we. Declaring the glory of God among the nations. The context of Isaiah 66 is God is raising up a purified remnant to witness. That's why he saves Paul. That's why he saved us. Uh, greatest encounter of all of the world is when Jesus comes for you. But he comes purposefully. And the content of witness is to declare the glory of God in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, it's the glory of Jesus. Why is that? 
because they are one and the same. We don't carry to the world some vague, nebulous message. We're emphatic. Jesus is God. He alone saves. Come to Him. Repent. Believe. Hope. Bow. And then arise and go serve. Paul saw glory come down from heaven. We've seen it too in the power of the Spirit. Like Paul, we too are changed. Radically. Carrying forth what? The message of the glory of the eternal God. Paul was a destroyer and God made him a defender. We were destroyers. And God made us defenders in our witness to the world of Jesus Christ. The only hope apart from whom all are lost forever. But God comes to save and He encountered us and saved us. So our encounter with Jesus is different, of course, in degree but not in kind. We were enemies. We lived for self. Glory met us, changed us, and made us witnesses of the glorious Savior who was redeeming a people for Himself. And praise God, He redeemed us. And praise God, He redeemed us for himself.